0: Yo, what is good everybody? I hope y'all are ready for another great episode. I hope it's going to be great at least. I enjoyed going through this study and uh, I definitely learned some things, so I'm excited to share it with you. Hey, before we start, I just need to let y'all know that although at least for those uh in countries that celebrate Thanksgiving, uh at the time of recording this, it's in it's in like 2 days. And your boy already got his christmas tree up okay i I just hop skipped and jumped over thanksgiving because i'm already ready for christmas now when i tell you that i have gone through four cartons of eggnog since the beginning of october i'm not lying i'm telling the truth i am primed and ready for the christmas season uh, y'all, y'all don't even understand how much I love the christmas season. I'm so ready for it But besides the point I hope that y'all have a great thanksgiving a uh, great thanksgiving week if You're still in school and you're on break. I hope you enjoy your break If you have kids that are on break, I hope you enjoy your time with them and uh, I just pray that god blesses you that he keeps you that he Continues to guide you in wisdom and that he gives you all a great holiday season, but hey Let's just hop into this, right? We're continuing on in the Gospel of John. We are going through John chapter 3, verse 22, all the way down to verse 30. We are making some headway today, and I'm excited to get into this like we always do. We're just going to read through this verse by verse, and then we're going to break it down. So let's do that. So John says in chapter 3, verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. but I must decrease. All right, let's break this down. Starting in verse 22, we'll actually cover the first uh, two verses here. So once again, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And at this point, John had not yet been put in prison. So. What we're reading here is we're, we're picking up right after the events of Nicodemus and right after Jesus saying the very popular words found in John 3.16 and through. And we're, we're tracking with the movements that Jesus is making here. He's moving out from the urban area of, uh, of Jerusalem, of Judea, to the countryside. And his disciples started baptizing as they're moving down. Now, a little detail in chapter 4 gives us a little bit more insight as to how this baptism looked, because just from reading John chapter 3, verse 22 here, it would lead us to believe that Jesus was the one physically baptizing people. But in chapter 4, in the very next chapter that we'll get to here in a couple of weeks, uh, John tells us that Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing, but that his disciples. We're doing the baptizing under him. And we see this in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. So, we're, we're told that, in fact, it's Jesus' disciples that are baptizing here. Next, we're told this kind of detail in passing, um, but it's supposed to, at least for my understanding, it's supposed to, make us think for a second we're told that jesus and his disciples are baptizing right next to the place that john the baptist is already putting in work and and as a reader i think we're supposed to look at this and go whoa what's going on here out of all the places that jesus could be baptizing he's doing it right where john is he's kind of stepping into his territory This little detail will raise some questions from John the Baptist's disciples later on. And lastly, with this opening setup, we're told that at this point, John the Baptist had not yet been imprisoned, which means that these events that we're looking at today in John's Gospel precede the events that we see in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, which mentions that Jesus officially calls his disciples and officially starts his ministry. So that's kind of the setting of what's going to take place in these next five or six verses that we're going to cover. So now, let's read verse 25, and we'll reflect on how some of these details play into the conversation that we're about to read. So verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So this discussion, or rather a dispute, popped up between a Jew, we were not told who, it could be multiple Jews, it could just be a single uh, Jew that they're having this discussion slash debate with. Uh, this arose between a Jew and John's disciples, and they started debating about purification. And this purification we actually hear of earlier in John chapter 2, whenever the water pots at the Jewish wedding went dry and Jesus was told to, you know, hey, fill these up with wine, please, and he he performs his miracle. But those water pots at the the Jewish wedding, they were there so that the guests could perform the purification rites before eating. And if you want to learn more about the specifics and the reason behind those purification rites, you can go back to our episode uh covering Jesus's first mi- miracle of turning water to wine. But basically immersion into water was meant to make yourself ritually pure. You know, we see this laid out in Leviticus 15. If you just read through Leviticus 15, you'll see a list under the law of a bunch of things that make you ritually impure. Sometimes people look at this list because it talks about um, you know, women on their period, or um, men touching women if they're on their period, or touching a dead body, or all these other things. And sometimes people will look at Leviticus 15 and be like, oh, so it, God's saying that you're just an unclean human if you're having your period, or or if uh, you have you know sexual relations within marriage. That's not the case. It's talking about ritual purity, which means you wouldn't be able to enter the temple. And do uh, temple sacrifices and and, uh, participate in that ritual. So Leviticus 15, when you read through it, highlights a bunch of things that will deem you ritually impure, which means you can't go into the temple and perform these practices. And the method for cleansing yourself to make yourself no longer ritually impure was by immersing yourself in water. So, this debate ensues between the Jew and John's disciples, and we're not told the details about the debate, but I think we can surmise that it's caused by Jesus and his disciples baptizing in the same area and probably in a similar way to how John was baptizing. So, it's fair to conclude that at some level they were debating about the differences between the baptisms and maybe over. Is more impactful. Now, for the reader, we already know about the Old Testament prophecies that point to God cleansing His people with water, not in a physical way, but cleansing them with water in a spiritual way. I'll remind you of Exodus 36 in verse 24 through 28, where it says, or sorry, Ezekiel 36 and verse 24 and 28, where it says, "I will take you from the nations." And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so, once again... It's it's been prophesied, we've established this in earlier episodes, that God will cleanse his people, not with a physical baptism of water, but he will cleanse them spiritually with water and give them a new heart. That he will make them a entirely new human, and he'll put his spirit within them. So there is one hundred percent a difference between what's going on with the baptisms that John is performing. And what's going on with the baptisms that Jesus is performing? So in order to try and settle this dispute that the Jew and John's disciples have, they decide just to go straight to John and start asking questions. And we see this in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So their reflections are being voiced to their teacher, John the Baptist, whom they follow. And it's hard to know exactly the tone in which they're speaking. You know, in one sense, you could affirm that they're speaking joyfully, that John's declarations about Jesus are true. I mean, remember back to chapter one in John's gospel. uh, John the Baptist makes this bold declaration about Jesus in verse 29 and 34, where he says, behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And we get told again that John bears witness and says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, remembering this declaration, and John's disciples certainly were there to hear it, uh, it's very possible that John's disciples who are now coming to him may very well remember his words and are saying, yo, teacher, John, look, bro, that Jesus dude? That you told us about earlier, he's attracting huge crowds and he's now baptizing just like you prophesied. That's definitely one possibility. Another possibility is that the disciples, that his disciples may hold some sort of animosity at the fact that Jesus, who is new on the scene, is encroaching on John the Baptist's thing. Like this is the thing that John the Baptist does. And now Jesus is rolling up right next to us. And he's taking everyone away from John the Baptist and he's now baptizing them? Now, some evidence for this possibly being the case is that they do exaggerate their claims. They say that all are going to Jesus to be baptized. But we know that's not true because in verse 23, we're told that people were still coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. So there may be some bitterness from John's disciples towards Jesus. And if that is the case, then John's reply to their concerns makes a little bit more sense than if they were saying this with glee and joy. Let's look at John's reply in verse 27 through 28. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now notice, his answer starts with affirming That all that we have is not by our own doing, but it's given to us by God. This is John's way of saying that Jesus is attracting large crowds and probably even taking from his own crowds because God's sovereignty deemed it so. And this is hard for many of us to reconcile and submit to. The idea that others who you may deem unfit or unworthy can be given more than what you have. And this stems from a notion that if we are good that we ought to be given bigger and better things, but th- this is not the notion that scripture teaches. Jesus is the perfect example of this. Look, Jesus, God almighty, the most deserving of any and all who have ever lived. He lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. But in the lens of our materialistic culture, his life was rather unimpressive. And his reward for perfection, for being as good as anyone could possibly achieve, his reward was to be tortured and killed. But his being serves a far greater purpose. Than his self-indulgence, his being serves the purpose of redemption and salvation for all mankind. So God sovereignly gives to whom He chooses. And this is what John is trying to get his disciples to see: that, that by John's crowds decreasing, and Jesus's crowd and popularity increasing, that it's a good thing. But it's not just a good thing; it's A thing that is ordained directly from God. And that's why it's good. Because God gives to whom he wills. Now John continues to support this claim in verse 28 by saying that, Hey, y'all remember, you were there when I said, I'm not the Messiah. But I have been sent to go before him. My purpose is to roll out the red carpet. So the Messiah can just nicely and cleanly and easily just arrive on the scene. And he continues on with his argument in verse 29 saying, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. I love how D.A. Carson breaks down what we just read here. He says, This verse is a parable that explains John the Baptist's understanding of his own role. The friend who attends the bridegroom, the ancient equivalent of a best man who organized the details and presided over a Judean wedding. He found his greatest joy In watching the ceremony proceed without a problem, and in knowing that the groom and his bride were being united with great rejoicing. John sees himself as the best man in this union between God and his people that is taking place right before his eyes. He's not trying to get in the way of that union. He's trying to do everything he can to facilitate and to help this take place as as perfectly as possible. And he's standing to the side now. He's, He's finding great joy in the fact that he can step aside and just watch Jesus, God Almighty, do what he came to do. Look, John knows his Old Testament. He knows the passages that speak about God's covenant with Israel as a as a symbolic covenant of marriage between Israel and God. There's so many passages that we can look at in the Old Testament. Uh, the first one would be Isaiah 62, verse 4 through 5. It says, You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here's another one in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 through 20 makes this really explicit. It says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the, ba- of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground and I will abolish the bow the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety I will betroth you to me forever I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know you shall know the Lord All of these Old Testament passages are talking about the covenant between God and Israel as a marriage covenant where God's people is his bride and he's entering into this marriage covenant. And guess what? The Jewish authors of the New Testament also recognize that Jesus, being God, is the bridegroom of his people. Look at this. In 2 Corinthians 11, In verse 2, Paul says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. There's language of marriage to Christ. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed, and the sea was no more. And I saw the the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in Ephesians 5, we went over this in our Ephesians study, where husbands are told to treat their wives and love their wives in a certain way, mirroring how Christ treats and loves the church. It's an analogy of marriage that's being made in Ephesians chapter 5. So John the Baptist clearly understands that Jesus is the groom and Israel, his people, is his bride. And John sees himself as the one who is preparing the way for this covenant to be fulfilled. And he's happy to just take a step back and simply be filled with joy for what is to come. And he makes this clear by saying that he must decrease so that Jesus can increase. So regardless of the tone that John's disciples are questioning him with, whether they're excited and seeing what is actually happening or if they're perturbed and a little annoyed because they think that Jesus is stealing the crowds of people from John the Baptist. Regardless, John makes it very clear that Jesus is the new guy on the scene. He is the ultimate guy on the scene. He is the one who must be followed and adored. And John is the one who has now fulfilled his mission in rolling out the red carpet so he can now take a step back and allow Jesus to do what he came to do.